Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm Nico. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And that can only mean one thing. That's right. We are returning for an amazing, spectacular, inexplicably flashback-filled episode that nearly brings the MC2 to a close. I'm here. I'm yes, here. Yes, we are present. This is the, like, you know, it's a thing that I think we've spent a lot of time talking about as a society over the last maybe especially the last like five years ten years but you know I think back to when I was a kid and I remember Seinfeld ending and I remember everybody being like oh my god we got to talk about that final episode of Seinfeld because you know when it happens it's going to be a cultural landmark I'm certainly not saying that I am of the mindset that like everybody was like what's going to be the canon change of Seinfeld but there was a lot of wait that's it that's the end what the fuck about the end of Seinfeld and then of course we saw it a little bit more with Things like The Sopranos, How I Met Your Mother, Lost. There's that moment where so many things, so many amazing pieces of long-term fiction hit their, are you sure, moment. And this was, for me, really, like 20 issues of Are You Sure? Yeah. Thinking about this is one of the more interesting parts about wrapping up this story, universe, whatever you really want to call it by the time we get to the end. Because if you were a month-to-month reader back then, I uh, you wouldn't have felt this way because you would have no idea that it was ending, and given that it's Spider-Girl, you would probably assume, like it seems Tom DeFalco did, that one way or the other, this was just going to keep going. So there's maybe not so much of a need to worry about it, but it does come to an end with literally a The End book, Spider-Girl The End, The degree to which it is so many issues, a number of different series in a number of different forms, tying up what is essentially one generously saying mediocre storyline that you could find in the middle of Spider-Girl's run is unfortunate and the big thing looking at it in hindsight now that we know that this is the end is yeah this is about the point that you realize that there is no way that they could from where we are now to the last issue that takes place in the mc2 universe there simply isn't a way that they could write something that would be so redeeming that this whole thing would feel like a fitting end and while i agree with every single word you just said we still have yet the two best-selling issues i'm sorry two of the three best-selling issues we will ever discuss on this show to go yet have yet to happen two of the three best-selling spider-girl issues ever have yet to be covered on this show and the best i'm sorry number two best-selling ever was the first ever spider-girl issue so it is so distressing to me that the worst of spider-girl has some strong sales the only thing i'll say about it is i do think it speaks to the fact that mayday became such an important character in marvel overall that even at the end even when things were bad 
that even when thousands of those people could not have really known much of May's story or anything like that, she has been seen as so important that it was actually worth purchasing what seemed like a milestone issue towards the end of her full-time tenure. And we really are running toward that finish line. We are here today to take a look at The Amazing Spider-Girl 25 to 30, Spider-Man Family, kind of, 1 through 8, but really 1 through 4, and then the content we're looking at from 5 through 8 was represented in a unique digital form with a little bit of a touch-up. We're also going to be taking a look at Web of Spider-Man 1 through 4, which would be reprinted in Spectacular Spider-Girl 5 through 8. And it is of note that Web of Spider-Man, number 1, is the third best-selling issue to feature Mayday Parker that we will be covering, selling an unfucking believable 58,000 copies of Web of Spider-Man number 1. I mean, it's um, unbelievable in the context of the numbers that we've been talking about, and of course, the title gives it some of that loft. Given the content and subject matter of this podcast, it is pretty staggering, and it feels sad. Really, because that's the first issue of the Spectacular Spider-Girl volume, and it's really i'm sorry it's not even the first issue it's the fifth issue it's just like that's the issue where she's in the trunk like like, all right so let's take a moment amazing spider girl 25 through 30 were released from december 2008 to may 2009 they feature our standard crew of tom defalco and ron friends writing and plotting with ron friends and sal buscema on pencils and inks bruno hong of impacto studios does most of the colors here though he does receive assistance from andrew crossley letters by dave sharp now when we move on to Spider-Man Family, same kind of situation with the exception of issues three and four, which feature art by Todd Nock and Rain Barreto, which that's crazy because some of these names are continuing to still be in books nowadays. So seeing that this is where they got their start is pretty awesome. Spider-Man Family 1 and 2 feature colors by Rob Rowe and Andrew Crossley. Once we make our way over to Spectacular Spider-Girl proper and we're looking at Spider-Man Family 5 through 8 and Web of Spider-Man 1 through 4, we see a once again consistent creative team of Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends with inks by Sal Buscema. Colors range from Bruno Hong, Andrew Crossley, John Casalis, and Antonio Fabella across multiple issues. It gets kind of crazy in there. And once again, Dave Sharp on all of the letters with one exception. Spider-Man Family number one sees Nate Picos letter. Now, Nate Picos continues to work for Marvel in a unique capacity while almost all of Marvel's letters are covered by virtual calligraphy, the company owned by Clayton Cowles. Occasionally, certain creators have the right to request that their letters be handled by a separate studio, which is almost always Nate Picos of Blambot. So this is interesting. Very interesting. All right. So let's just uh, jump into these sales. I mean, Amazing Spider-Girl starts at about 18,800 copies with number 25 and barely sees an uptick before she's canceled. The series bottom out at 13,687 copies with the final issue selling an uptick of about 14,000, right? So it just jumps up about 500 copies. Spider-Man Family starts lower than Amazing Spider-Girl ends. Spider-Man Family number one kicks off at 13,500 copies and by the time May leaves it, the book is selling an upsetting 7,200 copies. Can't even fathom. That I have to say really surprises me. Right? That's insane, isn't it? Like, that's unbelievably low. Not even just the lowness of it, but given the association with the Spider-Man name, that is surprising. 
people really must have had some forewarning that this was not going to be the smorgasbord of great content they might have been expecting. And I think that that had to really carry over because while the contents of Spider-Man Family 5 through 8 are also available for Mayday's portions online at the time. So this was like a really interesting, very unique kind of new idea that Marvel was trying where stories that were clearly just not strong enough to sell books regularly, they were trying their hand at moving these books digital to see if they could have a consistent digital life. So you could read Spider-Girl like you can read an Unlimited book, but we're talking way back in 2009. So if you had Marvel Unlimited, you were reading Spider-Girl on the website. It just was one of so few books that was original digital content. While I don't know that that necessarily hurt the sales figures, it definitely couldn't have helped. Yeah, no, I think you can safely say that it hurt. Those issues would see a sales of generally 8,000 copies across the Spider-Man family line. Spider-Man family would end. And three months later, just one difference. Instead of Spider-Man family, it's Web of Spider-Man. And the fucking book debuts at 58,377 copies. Compared to just a year earlier, Spider-Man family number one sold 13,500. I don't know how to explain four times better sales a year later. Maybe people really just hate Peter Parker's family. I would actually believe that because of all of the emphasis on things like jackpot at the time. Maybe people were like, oh, I'm not here for the wife, which you're fucking lunatics because Mary Jane is maybe the consistent best part of the MC2 universe once she stops trying to sabotage her daughter's happiness. Well, she's consistently one of the best parts right from the get go. And then weirdly in the middle somewhere, we start to throw in some storylines that just do her a total disservice. Web of Spider-Man continues with some pretty strong numbers, though. I have to admit there is a weird fall off that is it's it's really crazy by the time spider girl leaves web of spider-man which is in issue seven while we're not getting that far the book will dip down to a meager nineteen thousand copies sold in just six months so this book started at almost sixty thousand, and within six months is down to almost twenty thousand. that sales fall off that's that's the 40 percent benchmark right when books hit 40 percent of their initial offering that that first you know initial sales figure you really start to see the cancellations kick in that this is this is 30 percent. this is insane i mean we were just talking about a current series running that saw drop off like that from one to two probably was canceled right around the time those sales figures came out but has a little while to go on what's being solicited so this is uh, a trend we continue to see <laughs> And yet we don't continue to see it because I'm really glad that we're at this part of Spider-Girl. I feel like ultimately this is something I didn't read. I thought I had, but I couldn't have because they gave Spider-Girl too many fucking tries. By this point, I'm pretty frustrated, to be honest. I'm not enjoying it the way I used to. I am frustrated like at all times. I'm confused a lot of the time. And I don't think that anything, there's no lessons. I'm not growing as as a reader so the characters can't be growing in their stories either yeah i think at a certain point i detached a little bit and decided that uh, exactly what you said there's really no lessons to take it's not really very fun i am now reading and putting pins in things that i think in the future when mayday returns this is something i would like to see revisited and expanded upon or retconned or addressed because house of ideas there are some some ideas here 
there are some great ideas. There are some very silly ideas. There are some really mediocre ones. But this is now all in in Mayday's character bio. And I'm interested in thinking about which of these things would you just act like, you know, Emma Frost and IVX never happened. We just ignore it. We don't talk about it anymore. And which of these things would be really interesting to do a Morrisonian, you know, I know you completely forgot about this because it was a decade and a half ago and it didn't mean anything, but this is actually how the entire universe functions. If you told me that Spider-Girl was at the heart of the Marvel Universe's ability to function because she represents the potentiality of the future and goodness born of the heroic age of Marvels, I would accept that in a heartbeat. Mayday Parker really, like, against all odds, I mean, Bill Collins is fucking wailing on the drums right now, really has become maybe one of my favorite superheroes ever. And it is certainly, certainly, thanks in no part to her fucking book. Definitely not this portion of the book. It's never been the book for me. You know, sitting on, I don't even know if this is episode like 85 anymore or whatever, but like, it's never really been the book. It has been the hero. It has been this beautiful synthesis of his past and his present that Tom DeFalco has managed to create. You know, I don't plan on having children. And, you know, I got plenty of time to change my mind because, you know, gay people like to have kids until they're 70. And so I don't necessarily want kids. So sometimes when people are like, oh, someday you'll have purpose. I'm like, oh, no, fall off a boat. And the thing that I come back to is I have a lot of friends, even friends with children who say to me, how are your shows doing? I know how much time, money, love and mental energy you invest on those. How is your comic? How are your music projects? I work in academic design. People ask me how my projects are going because they know that I'm really invested in the success of my students. And there's like a lot of different ways to create life. And um, I have some friends who I don't love the things they do and I don't love their lives for them. But I know that that person is like a, a strong, good person that I love. And I I just feel like Mayday Parker is someone I want to be like. Like I want to make her proud. She is born of the same thing I am. A guy who loved comics, thought about comics all the time, and he just thought about it so much he made it his job. Now, my dad never made it his job, but my dad raised me on Spider-Man stories. And like Mayday is every kid in fandom. It's just, I want so much better for her. Kind of, I guess, like, it's kind of like she's got her own personal Twitter. You know what I mean? I wanted better for her, but this is what fandom's got. Yeah, everything is there. This is such a strong character. And I don't feel that the trajectory, especially at the end, matches the strength of who May is. And I can't really even say has grown into because unfortunately, one of the big problems is there has not been a ton of growth. This sort of set in stone version of her from the beginning is who we have and who is great. The advantage of that, again, I'm thinking about the future all the time now, is you could drop May into a book tomorrow and have this amazing character to work with who you know has her bona fides in terms of having been around for quite some time and having fought hero you know she's she's good to be wherever but she's also ready to take a journey that can expand on all of these great iconic qualities that were created for her by somebody who understands absolutely how to create a really incredible superhero somebody that you will root for i just think that person or those people because it really was the team i think this team was not prepared for the challenge of shepherding may into the new millennium basically into the next 20 years of comics and publishing in which our understanding of teen
teenagers would expand drastically, as would our expectations for the kind of stories that we told about them. It's such a powerful thing to think about. And, you know, I'm going to kind of like wrestle with what you just said and who Mayday winds up being, because I don't know, there was a freeness to designing Mayday, I guess, just sort of like whatever you wanted to happen, whatever you could imagine happening to her happens. But I feel in many ways like I'm let down by the collaborative nature of comic book storytelling failing every which way it could throughout the longevity of this project. One of the magical things about comic collaboration is other people coming in and changing the work a little bit. And then by the point someone finally did, it's horrifying and bad and not what I want and bad and it's not bad stories, but like that's not what I wanted for May. That is bad to my trajectory for May. And we come back to the original creators who tell what is possibly the worst Spider-Girl story as the final volley for this universe. And I'm just bummed, man. Yeah, it is unfortunate. The storyline that she ends up in, not written by Tom DeFalco, definitely not what I wanted for her, but I did immediately notice and it's the same thing when we saw Todd knock on the on the art. As soon as you get somebody else in there, that that spark ignites and there's so much room to burn. And I have a lot of thoughts about people who I would really love to see write Mayday. Even having somebody who might not have been on the list of people I would choose write her opened the door for story possibilities and character possibilities that it just... She's such an interesting character because there really are not a lot of people like this. Even if you look at other MC2 characters, like I'd love to see J2 in the future as well, but J2 is a blank slate in a different way. There just, there hasn't been that much. With May, there's this really, really rich history, but not a lot of change. And the, the other thing I was thinking about as I was doing my notes for this was this idea that like, with so many different artists drawing a character, you create a sort of of average, a conglomerate, an amalgam of all those various looks of them, and or I do anyway. And that's kind of the image of them that exists in my head. Emma Frost is always to me the best example because people go absolutely buck fucking wild trying to out Emma Frost themselves on art and out Emma Frost other artists. And sometimes it makes her looking like a clay horse. Yes, 100%. I mean, it goes completely off the rails at times. And other times it creates things that are iconic. A criticism often is leveled at the Bachelo revolutionary era for putting her in black. And I don't think that's entirely unreasonable. But man, did it give us another view and perspective of Emma and her clothing. May has had so few people work on her, design her, change things around that there's this almost uncanny valley quality to the degree to which which I associate her with one specific artist's and her look being exactly that. And there are no other elements, no other artists' influences that are being put in to mix things up. I never thought of it that way. Like the mosaic that, you know, because like sometimes you see a picture of somebody and they'll be like, oh my God, doesn't this person look like this celebrity? And you're like, no, I don't think your friend looks like David Boreanaz. Maybe they both have 
have wide faces. I'm not sure what you're going for here. And you come to realize that that person has seen their friend a thousand times. So they see the facial expressions. They see the facial tics. They've seen them in a thousand angles and in a thousand lights. So their shape of that person has more Boreanas to it than your shape does from one picture that probably just reminds that person of the reasons that this person looks like David Boreanaz, not that he does. And with Mayday being drawn by, I mean, realistically, three people, because even when Todd Nock fills in, he's actually mostly filling in on not Mayday stories. It's really almost an indie book level of singular version of a character, but for a character that that makes no sense on. Yeah. And the timing of it, you know, I've just kind of at this point forgotten about the Pat Olief May design because we've just had Ron Friends for so long. This is just not something that happens a lot with comic book characters and really not with iconic, big, long running comic book characters that nobody else gets to contribute. And it, it's one of the things that's really stopping me in my tracks about this whole thing. And I think there might not be a better point to jump into the issues because that really highlights for me one of my frustrations with this book. I cannot believe that once we finally get who is April, oh my God, she chooses to look like a 1980s Electronachos going to a KFC. And I just can't figure the fuck out. Like, why does she choose to look like the I'm in my pajamas on my way to anywhere Electra? It's so dated and it's so dated so late in the series. Okay. Yeah, it bears pointing out that we're talking about issue 25, the cover of which somebody seems to have realized deserves some kind of notice about the fact that it's 25 issues and that's kind of a milestone. We've never really had a, a quality milestone issue. We've had a lot where the book appears to be acknowledging that it's a milestone and doing what it can to play around with that to varying degrees of success. But it's pretty interesting here that it, it's a whole year after the last anniversary we had. So there is time to do something and it's far enough away that it's not, you know, overcrowding or anything. But besides this cover, just with the big number 25 kind of marking things, this is really the last like numbering milestone we're going to get. There's not even like a, you know, a big MC2 heroes group shot to give the impression that somebody thought about this anniversary. And that to me sort of spoke to just like, we're just trying to get them out. We're just trying to publish them. We'll, we'll figure everything else out later. And there's a weird element. I don't, I kept thinking there's no way we're going to be able to talk about this as long as it should be talked about. And then I kept being like, no, there's tons of time. But the thing that I'm really stuck on at the moment is, wow, I hadn't even considered the renumbering of it, where nowadays this would absolutely have become Spider-Girl 125. It might have even stayed Amazing Spider-Girl 125, but there is no chance we would have left this some unremarked thing. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, like, it's almost worse because because of this giant number 25 that's on the building in the cover. Somebody knew, somebody acknowledged that this was a moment, but as a whole, the team decided that there would not be any use in doing anything more with it. And that, I think, is one of the better indicators that this is 
just kind of happening automatically at this point. It is not really everybody all hands on deck trying to steer this even in a direction, even in a direction. <laughs> like, I, you know, I want to say even in a direction towards the end, but I honestly would have no trouble believing that the team really had no idea when this would end because it kept getting picked up and did not expect that they were anywhere near the end. But at this point, we are getting directionless entirely, ending or no ending. I It's tough to see people, the creative team driving this book anyway. And I think it takes me to a really funny place where it's almost like they kept treating it like, well, she's not going to die. So we just got to keep coming up with more stuff for her, I guess. Right. Which I mean, we just got to keep milking it. Right. Like, you know, just uh, buy a little bit more time because they're going to keep throwing issues at us. We're going to be not interested in telling Spider-Girl stories. And they're going to be like, what's the next Spider-Girl story? And we're just going to keep buying time. And like it hit a point where they bought so much time that time is kind of what crushed them. They'd stretched this out for so long that this should have been an interesting moment for the series just to sort of interact with what we're discussing for the next couple of issues. There is an unbelievable amount of body swapping, body stealing, body switching. And essentially, the plot of the series becomes the clone of Mayday to Mayday's belief is as valid as she is and as such should be treated with respect. And May fights her clone but does not seem to want to kill her at any point which okay that's crazy because her clone wants to kill the shit out of her all the time and Aranya wants to steal her body and Peter Parker becomes the Green Goblin God when he combines with Norman Osborn's consciousness but also May's clone who will ultimately name herself April who it is revealed is part clone part symbiote if that was confusing you probably had a little easier time than we did reading it. I also feel like it's really important to point out the best part of this entire thing and actually like a shining beacon of greatness. The hybrid clone symbiote April in her symbiote superhero form takes the name Mayhem. It's actually too good. It's like it's, it's too good. It's, it's unfair to Yes. If Marvel called me tomorrow and said, pitch the whole thing, the first thing I would say is somehow Mayhem comes back. Like, we can't not have Mayhem. I would probably do a little bit different with her because what we get from Mayhem, especially right here, is she's so confused. And I'm sort of confused as the reader. We open up with the Avengers next trying to find Spider-Girl in the wreckage and Saberclaw looks queerer than ever. I'm here for it. And, and is now suddenly brown instead of gray. Okay. And yeah, I'll take it. You know, yeah. it's great to see the Avengers next again. But once we cut to April in May's bedroom pretending to be May, I'm not sure that she knows she's the clone yet. But we are going to reach a point where it's clear she always knew she was a symbiote. So she has to know she's the clone because there's no other way she could be genetically part symbiote. So are they having her lie in her internal <laughs> monologue? Which, you know, I could no prize it with some sort of like symbiote brain versus human brain. They're also gesturing and making attempts at giving us the old DeFalco switcheroo. And maybe this is actually May who has returned home and it's the clone in the rubble. They're trying to be like, oh, who knows? But it is very clearly April the clone who came out of the wreckage and went back home pretending to slash believing she was May. And May in her spider girl clothes is trapped under the rubble waiting to be rescued. They will continue in the spirit of this with the suggestion 
suggestion that May might be the clone and April might be the real one. And this includes, even after acknowledging the symbiote stuff, there is a sort of hand-wavy way in which, you know, they both were experimented on, so the original could have the symbiote hybrid quality. April will just continue to insist that she is not the clone and May is. And while we do have that kind of comic book thing of like, of course, Mayday Parker, Spider-Girl is not going to be the clone. There is, it's kind of like the other clone stuff. They talk around it all the time. They, there's clearly something there, but they will never definitively answer the question or do anything with it. So it is just this weird repeated beat of her saying she's not the clone and that technically being plausible because we never visited in such a way that we get the definitive answer for almost all of this. And also, I just want to tag on to that, that by the time this series ends, it has never been acknowledged that Kane is a clone of Spider-Man. Ever. In fact, they work so hard to never say the word clone that it becomes frustrating. They do work so hard, as in dialogue is made worse in order to skip around that fact. Same thing, you know, obviously they never acknowledge Ben Riley as being a clone. It is just such an odd thing to me, especially because they're almost overusing the word clone when it comes to May and April. And if there were ever a time to, I mean, I don't like the idea of doing a clone saga for May at all, but since we're here, this would really be an important time for Peter to say, boy, do I get it. But instead, we just get this Peter who is completely unhinged about clones and the idea of cloning. And again, he's like, what a time his daughter at one point. Yes, he is cruel to both girls. Again, nobody actually knows who's the clone and who's not. So it's sort of insane that he's borderline abusive to this girl that might be his biological daughter. Not that it matters because that's not what family's about. And that's the kind of stuff that you would want to talk about in a clone thing like this. But they just don't. We're just not going to do that. Spider-Man will not be reflecting on his experiences to the girls and saying it will all be all right. We will gesture broadly at ideas like family's family no matter what, but we'll never get into what that really means and what the stakes are. Nothing about identity and what makes one who they are. We just have a crazy clone and we're going to do crazy clone stuff. And the crazy clone stuff really reaches some uncomfortable apexes in ways that I did not expect. For instance, I'm just going to put it out there. I love you, Aranya. I do. But I have some real fucking issues with you stealing a young woman's body. That's just weird. Like, it's just not good. And I don't think that that fits my Aranya. And maybe I don't know Aranya as well as I'm supposed to or something. I don't know. But I am really kind of bugged by the fact that she just wants to do a body swap. So we have a clone. We have a body swap. We wind up with a consciousness inserted into a brain. There's just, I don't even understand. the. Oh, and then there's the ghost of Aunt May because only family with biological stuff, like you've pointed out, and all of the weird Star Wars reference. I can't. Yeah, the Aranya thing just immediately sprung to mind. Listen, I was okay in terms of character stuff with the idea that Aranya had a plan that involved this body swap. It was not intended to be permanent. That was made very clear. In terms of editorial, I do think it is too much bodies and stuff and consciousnesses, so doing it at all doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. But Aranya, as I know her, doing a body swap in order to allow good things to happen, to create a way for the heroes to win, sure, okay, weird, I can buy it. But from that point onward, she goes in this completely bonkers direction for the character that doesn't represent anything that, and I'm not super familiar with Aranya, but I feel like I'm familiar enough to know that she just becomes 
like lightly a villain. Morally gray at the very least definition. There is no direction to any of this. It just, it's from one thing to the other and characters change on a dime, except for, of course, May, who remains exactly the same throughout. And yeah, is going on some sort of spirit quest in her own mind while Aranya inhabits the body, led by a young, hot, blonde Aunt May. This is way before Marissa Tomei, so no excuses. And yet again, she's like, my name is also May, mysteriously, rather than just saying, I am your Aunt May. And for some reason, I look young, even though if I'm a mental construct, you have no idea what I look like young. And otherwise, now we have to get into theology of spider journeys. It just... Yeah, I kept thinking it was a spider angel, and it made me so mad that Aunt May is a spider angel. I don't know why. She is, essentially, because it's not... It's not a construct from May's mind that May created this. I mean, this is a afterlife entity that has come in to usher her through this whole thing really unhelpfully. She's not good at this job. That's unfortunate because she's not good at imparting family wisdom either. So she's just here to ensure that page space is filled. And it's like there's too many multiple spider mind figures in too few bodies way too frequently in this arc. And yet somehow, I don't know how, I did not not take the time to talk about everybody's favorite jigsaw face and the last line of defense for Monsieur Dejeuner as we come to discover that Ilan Dejeuner is maybe uh, I, I don't even know like she witnessed some bad stuff happen when she was a baby and so that's why she's an insane goblin person whatever it is it does not matter it has no bearing on anything is very very odd to make the choice to include this character stuff at this point, regardless so of whether or not you knew the book was going to end. I have no idea what the point. There's another reveal like this coming about another character that we'll get to that so satisfying, had, very satisfying, had a lot of potential, but at the same time, it didn't go anywhere. It didn't go to the place that we already said it ought to go when we didn't know that there was like actually room for it to happen. So it's so odd to me. They're just the idea that you would make any character choices at this point rather than just getting through the plot that we have that is already so complex I don't even blame the writer because sometimes it's how you get stuff out why did editorial not say pull it back because I think they sort of and I mean this with some kindness but I think they sort of liked letting Tom DeFalco make some bad moves sure this might be the Riverdale writer's room at this point yeah I feel like one of the things that they get out of letting Tom DeFalco make these decisions is something that we've discussed that like we see some of these decisions come back in a slightly less ridiculous way a year or two later in the Marvel comic proper continuity. So while, you know, they might not find these to be the most valuable books in terms of critical acclaim or, you know, sales, it really gives you a sense they had a reason they did this. They did get something out of this book. It was a testing ground. And if some of our theories that perhaps Tom DeFalco had one of those, you know, writer emeritus kind of contracts. It's so funny because the, as we have discussed, the sales figures are so low. I can't imagine why they continued to work with Mayday rather than just, you know, pulling out another J2. Why not another wild thing? How do we not do an X people book? It's not as though this was selling so much that to move off of it would be a risk. Like an X people book would have sold for five issues. It would have matched the performance of May's 
middling performance. You know, obviously I'm not talking about here because they're like in the middle of a storyline, but at some point in the amazing Spider-Girl conceptualization and going forward, I mean, everything you're saying makes sense about why why it's happening and why weird editorial choices are allowed to go through. But it, it surprises me that they didn't say, as long as we're here, let's just give Julius the Gorilla his own series. If there's one thing that I found myself hating how much I enjoy, I really ship Aranya and Black Tarantula out of nowhere. I, I want to find it really problematic, but it like gave me a way not to worry about him and May being creepy. I almost like to think that when Aranya and May switched bodies back, she just took all the horny for this old guy. And so now it's funny because now Aranya is clearly in her 30s and, you know, Black Black Tarantula is like 19. And so now we're like, ooh, cougar. And ultimately, when they're together, she has like a little heart on her outfit at one point. And I'm like, oh, that's that heart of the spider thing, I guess, that never gets resolved even a little bit. I did have that moment of, all right, I've got to do the math here because I need Black Tarantula to be still a teenager in order for it to be okay how much he's been lusting after May. But he is now saying he has had a previous relationship with this very obviously adult woman. And you know, I could be very generous and say Black Tarantula in the course of all this has just turned 19. The relationship was not actually as long ago as they seem to be indicating it was. And soon after he turned 18 and became an adult, he met this woman. That is my gift to you, world, should you need to really have this not be legally problematic because regardless, it is still very problematic. I guess I do ship it. I really did. I don't know why. I don't know how I could have thought that they would ever get there but I was kind of rooting for May and Black Tarantula I really wanted them to have an Amanda and Peter on the island after the finale of Melrose Place kind of moment precisely it precisely it's insane like the idea that this would happen is insane in this book given everything and that's why I liked it that he lasted this long and continued to be an important part of the story the only problem with him is that he is potentially too old and like I said we can we, we have figured out between the two of us great ways to get around that but just their chemistry it's the batman and catwoman thing but not even turned up to 11 it's just like laterally turned up in the weirdest strangest ways possible and it spoke to me of that idea that she's spider girl she's not really mayday parker high school student and this guy as her we never really got to see her with a superhero boyfriend not counting the buzz because they never knew that each other were superheroes this these are the kinds of changes that may deserve that she never got in her own book to have a weird crazy romance with a crime lord who is increasingly becoming a hero what a cool story and how that would have changed may and her perception of love and relationships and it's a boy out of high school it's finally a time when somebody who loves her can embrace both sides of her so much possibility and i was still rooting for it all the way to the end even though very obviously at this point it's never going to happen i guess in all that Aranya is an excellent runner-up. She's technically the winner, but, you know, runner-up in my mind for whoever gets to hang out with Black Tarantula's insane, ginormous back, overhead pressing, just like 
a hydraulic press. I I mean, a great character. Just love this guy. Genuinely, genuinely great character. Like one of the most stunning things that the MC2 gave us was a handful of characters that like, dude, I don't want to sound like a nut job, but when Brenda finally got some fucking page time, I was screaming, dude, like I will take crumbs of Raptor to have more Raptor. And I thought back on when we were like, oh my God, Spider-Girl, you can't stop fucking up. And like, Brenda's your best friend now. And like, then nothing happened. And like, man, I just really, there are so many characters in this book where I'm going to miss them. Like, I'm going to miss the Mary Jane that with one of her final moments punches the goblin god in the face because she's just not fucking here for your lameness. And like, some of these characters, man, Chesbro, how am I going to find anyone as cool as Chesbro in any comic book ever again? Yep. I I mean, I completely agree. I don't care for Normie in terms of character characterization just because they never really got there but i love the idea of normie and the function that normie plays in the group and the history that he has with the parker family that we fought the hard-fought goblin war and came to the other side with kind of a brother nephew friend thing that's gonna get fucking kicked in the balls in this yeah there are some real standout characters that i truly do love and black tarantula is an example of one that sometimes mc2 let itself go off the rail and then keep whatever happened as a result of that. Often it would just relegate those silly things to the background or never revisit them again wisely. But this was one that this could have been a one-off character, but they really dug in with Black Tarantula. And even though he's very silly and over the top, when it comes to all this stupid crime stuff, he's always the one that I'm excited to see. If we had replaced Hobgoblin with Black Tarantula, I would obviously want the plot to be different, but that much presence and moving in the book for a character like Black Tarantula really would have changed the entire tone and trajectory of this last bunch of issues. Because the other character that we are forced to spend some time with as part of this crime world is Silverback. And I don't think anybody cares. I would rather have Black Tarantula than Silverback. There's nothing in it for me with a general generic Magia guy. And I feel maybe a little bad that we've done such a disservice to the sort of relationship with these issues as issues that we've taken oh no 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 no, no. i we there's i almost suggested that we just go from this all the way through to the end it is one long arc and even the division from book to book let alone series to series is not really worth noting it's worth noting because it's not worth noting this is one gigantic clusterfuck of a story nothing about anything changes from the series and just issue to issue it's the same things continuing over and over again it's this really really long drawn out plot with no sense of division and so the big i think takeaway from this end of series sort of drag along for me i just it's sort of dragged out the big takeaway for me is that it's always just gonna kind of go back to it's a spider girl world for defalco he's never really gonna try to move past spider girl just keeps on swinging in her song, which is why I find myself really unmoved by all of what feel like, you know, it's pauses are all just stops anyway. So every time you throw in one of these pauses in the action, 
you're stopping the action. You're not just pausing. So every time there's another complication, there's another wrinkle, there's another ripple, there's another reason that this thing can't happen and this character gets, you know, lost on the way to that thing. Nothing makes me feel that this is a better conclusion than 100 was. If anything, I'm more tired for this. Yeah, I couldn't have put it better. This is, um, on top of the fact, it's just really chaotic. In part because they keep cutting to Peter's greatest battles in this big psychic scape with Norman. Instead of, you know, cutting to scenes where May was the hero, we see May along with Aunt May, and it's just so Judeo-Christian, and I'm not trying to imply that there has always been some sort of deep, non-Judeo-Christian undercurrent to Spider-Man, but at no point do I think that the Spider-Totem involves the Bhagavad Gita. Like, it's not that I think there should be something other than that here, but this gets so Christian-based at times in terms of the angelic white light and the blonde hair, the dressed all in white, for a thing about a dark goblin god. Yeah, it totally makes no sense. Uh, the the spirit journey, maybe, like in and of itself, interesting idea for May. This, we know that even if she goes on it, it's not going to drastically change the character. So in that way, it also does not feel like the best idea. Um, but the tone of it and the putting on May in the mix to constantly be like, hey, you need to do this. No, don't do it that way. You're doing it wrong. No, don't do that. It just feels beneath the idea of a spirit journey in and of itself. It's just this other character talking where it her functioning as like a chorus or omniscient narrator could have really done something, made a statement, been aesthetically pleasing. This is just another element that's in the mix and it's not creating anything greater than the sum of its parts. I think there are a couple of things that I am eager to still yet discuss in this finale, you know, because you're right, the sum of the parts aren't really worth the story. It's just, it's disappointing, but it's the case. I think that the art really starts to suffer here. There really stops being the kind of consistency I'm looking for. I am referring specifically to page 24 of the digital on Marvel Unlimited of issue 30. I cannot figure out how Mayday's head is pasted on her body and how that's her back spider. That's not her front spider. And I'm not sure how Norman's legs are splayed like that. And there's sort of a distension of the fingers on Norman's hands. I'm not trying to say that every panel needs to be a major thing, but if this is issue 30 of her second series and this is her second series finale and she's facing off against the specter of the bad guy who literally hung over her issue zero that somehow Norman Osborn could even psychically be a problem through Normie that this is that fucking championship punch this is that knockout moment and the proportions are wrong tells me that this ran too long I think you're exactly right about that I also think it's an odd choice to with such a the intention was obviously to have a really iconic single page to put this much dialogue also really does a disservice to what the attempt to accomplish here was and it it just gives that impression of this is all happening on autopilot this is just machine work essentially and real people are obviously putting in the time and the effort and the creativity and I don't want to minimize that no matter what you put out doing so takes a piece of you and it takes 
takes work and it's not always easy. But this is that area where you get to, especially for long-term professionals at the end of a run. There's so many factors here that really make me want to say it didn't have to be perfect, but I would think between all of the people involved, it would not have gone to print being better than this. Yeah, I agree. I really do. The other moment that I'm like, how did you think that was the way to show this? I'm thrilled that finally somebody isn't lying to fucking Mary Jane. (laughs) And it's the fucking baby. The baby is the one that's finally like, hey, Ma, I want to stop you from... Uh, first of all, I want to congratulate Benji Parker for being the first Parker boy to not accidentally Gwen Stacy a love interest. He broke so the cycle. He did. He broke... Oh, now I want little Andrew Garfield playing this kid when he's older. You know, Like, you know, older. Not like I want Andrew Garfield voicing a baby. Though that you would do fucking it. make sense in this universe. In part because I can't tell the difference oh my between God. This, this goblin god and Seth. Um, Sorry, I got to go back to Benji, a look who's talking-esque story about Benji with Andrew Garfield's voice. I would sign up for that (laughs) yesterday. And if I point out one more thing that I think meant something to me, it's that it's over and over again, Mary Jane being like, you're one of us, I guess, that seems to convince April to stop killing people from time to time. It's an odd way to do it, but it is kind of cool that if Mary Jane has to have the power of love, it's not too ham-handed. She doesn't like make hearts around her face or anything it's just her words have impact I like that I completely agree Mary Jane we said she's a standout character she stands out in these last issues especially because there's so much going on you know kind of just by default she can't really do much um, she's not going to fight back and and I do to a certain degree really love that they as well I for this story especially for this book I'm very glad that she never got you know powers or a suit or anything like that her consistency as somebody who will be at the fight unflinching but not trying to fight but you know she's always at the fight because somebody dragged her into it not because she showed up to fight but she's not scared she's taking care of business and in a similar way the way that she loves the characters is it's not showy she didn't she's not coming to save the world or anything but yeah when a clone of may enters the house that person is now family and when stuff comes up you're going to be treated like family there's no flowery speeches she's not even precious about it but april now exists they know she's in the home and therefore she is family and i feel like that baseline is set early on it is unfortunately kind of deviated from not in a way that is meant to show any sort of character deviation for may but is just the writing went where it went april is kind of a second class child and with peter it's so blatant that it's disturbing in a whole other way that is never dealt with with mary jane you know because she had the initial just like Olive Garden-esque when you're here your family never-ending pasta and webbing bowls But from there, you know, because April is such a complicated character, this would be a challenge for any writer. But there was never a great way for Mary Jane to love unflinchingly while also dealing with the fact that April is a fucking nutcase. Yeah, April, you know, there's so many complicated feelings I have with a number of the things that we're yet to cover. There is a loss of sensitivity to a lot of concerns that we praised the book for in the Spider-Girl 40s to 70s that just seems 
seems to have completely been erased at some point. It is so frustrating in that regard. But there's a kind of resistance to treating April as more than the... It's almost like they adopted April and then had Benji and now wish they hadn't adopted a second child because they had one anyway. And April does seem to represent that foster child in the face of the miracle baby. That is like a trope in this kid went bad because they were adopted stories. They're really hitting some troubling child stories as we progress through the amazing years. I think that's a very astute observation on what the vibe is because with Peter, it's just insane, but it does kind of vacillate. The mood in the house is just very clearly, we love you unconditionally, but here are the conditions. And it it seems like it just would have made more sense to not go to the we love you place and just have them be skeptical of her the whole time. Um, you know, to not have her accompany May to high school, to not invite her into the home. Norman Osborne is a resort. They had ways that they could have given April dignity and respect and a form of love while also saying, we found you in a fucking test tube. There's obviously more going on here. You don't just automatically become a part of a family, but we're going to work this out. The idea that they would lean so hard into what at this point is the already tropey, you're a clone, but now you're my blood, so you're family, and then really give very few opportunities to show that and to see it demonstrated by all the characters to the point that when they break from that, it's a real stake because we saw them clearly feeling motherly love, sisterly love for April. They just say that she's family and they love her and then remain on edge for the entirety of her existence in a way that would probably fucking drive me crazy too. I guess there's no way to, other way to put it. May Day is Elijah Wood and April is Macaulay Culkin and this is the good spider. And I am level by how much we immediately love April despite April who if we make jokes that we love May despite her treatment in the book. Oh my God. Oh my god. Yeah, it's a whole hour comedy special for April. She is a cigarette burn and an underage beer. She is just tragic. And I'm fuck. Like fuck. I'm like, I'm there's nothing really left to talk about in this volume that doesn't just keep happening in the next volume. So I I find myself frustrated that this is the end of Amazing Spider Girl, this thing that we like pointed to as was gonna be this golden age of May. May Day and May Day is right. Yeah, I don't know that I have a ton more to add. My early notes had a lot of like, oh, I'm seeing Faith vibes. Like, this is very Faith. And then Faith went, I'm talking for anybody who doesn't know about Faith from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Faith went in a very dark direction and they took it to a, a place and then they removed her for a little bit because it would have been really difficult to reckon with having her stay there or not become a really major antagonist they bring her back and the villainy gets ramped up a notch but then that's a two episode thing where they bring her back 
And from there, she gets one more episode in which they slam the brakes on and they take the character in a different direction, which is what you have to do because otherwise it would have become a whole thing where like Faith is the greatest evil on the planet Earth. The pace was just too fast to not do something. And with April, it's like we get those Faith beats, but there's never a break. It just keeps ramping up and it ramps up logarithmically. So it gets just absolutely insane and the breaks never show up. It just gets crazier and crazier and nastier and more confusing and you know based on all the facts that this is a character that has to be redeemable but she is increasingly make it, making it impossible for her to be redeemable there's no justification for this there's no justification plot wise for it either and it really takes us all the way to Spider Girl the end which is even canon I don't know but that is more April's redemption story than it is the end of Mayday's time as the flagship hero of MC2. And that is maybe the greatest tragedy of the whole thing. We gave Spider-Girl Volume 1 like a B plus, And we were like, yeah, I'm giving Amazing Spider-Girl like a C, maybe a C minus. This 31 issues kind of tested my patience a little bit more than I would have liked. The American Dream mini should have been a one shot. The volumes of A-Next and Fantastic Five just felt like more of the same in a way that didn't reflect growth of 130 issues of series. I don't regret going further, but I don't believe we went further for the sake of art. I believe we went further for the sake of completion. Yep, I agree with the grade that five issues of American Dream could have been compressed into a one-shot. I wish that American Dream had gotten the series instead of Mayday. Not the whole thing, but instead of Amazing Spider-Girl, if we had gotten 30 issues of American Dream, and maybe like a a neat five-issue Spider-Girl series, I think it really would have been a different trajectory for the MC2 and I don't want to say could have saved it but I uh, I think that it was a better character for DeFalco and it was happening at a time where that could have been really useful for prolonging this universe that I still think has so much potential and really excites me weirdly in ways that like the Ultimates even didn't. Proof that this universe will never be done. As we're doing this, Marvel announced that Norm and Osborn is going to lead a book called Gold Goblin. There you go. Gold Goblin. Phil. So, I agree. At some point, it should have, like, just every 25 issues, they should have just changed leads. Not because Mayday isn't great, but because they didn't really have 130-something issues of great for Mayday at this point. And I'm ready to say goodbye to the MC2. I know we've got a couple of books left, but I'm ready. I'm ready. I mean, we are, we are saying goodbye. We're breaking up the goodbye a little bit to do some other stuff, but being in this arc that starts in issue 25 as we've said but I want to make it really clear outside of talking about the story this is the arc that takes us through all of what is left of Spider-Girl's story in the MC2. This will continue all the way through to Spider-Girl the end and when the next one starts it's as though just one issue has passed. So this is goodbye. (laughs) 
I'm going to open our discussion of Mr. and Mrs. Spider-Man with this does not feel like an MC2 product. This does not feel like an MC2 discussion. It definitely reads and looks like an MC2 product, but there is nothing MC2 about this. I don't really get Mayday from this. This 40 pages did not feel like I needed to do it. And there are ways in which I didn't need to do it becomes I didn't need to do it, but man, look what came out of it. Everything you said is correct. What I was really hoping for was something that could in some way play around with Peter Parker in the MC2's past is in some way our Spider-Man 616's present. Yet the present in 616 and MC2 is ostensibly the same time period. So this is all, of course, because of the sliding time scale of comics. And that's never something that you want to get like deep into and start defining decades or anything like that but there remains something to play around with and something that is really interesting about mc2 is that it is everybody aged about 20 years and yet the time period is the same and there's something there's something cool about that as as i understand the idea more and or as i started to understand the idea more and more as we were reading the book that became kind of like a it's a thing that's always in the back of my head i got a pin in it because there's something there and you're right this didn't feel like an MC2 story. It felt like a Tom DeFalco story and there's Baby Mayday in it so we can make the leap. It's the same thing as we're going to talk about Secret Wars Spider Island in which Spider-Girl appears and in the solicits they say we'll take you to the MC2 patch of Battle World. Sure, sure. But it's just an MC2 story. Like there's no, they don't talk about a Baron. Nobody mentions Doom once. It really was just an MC2 story. I wouldn't be surprised if it had been written way before Secret Wars took place and they just had it sitting in a drawer. There's nothing about the story that says this takes place on Battle World in the MC2 corner, which really fucking unfortunate because that would have been absolutely amazing. It is just an MC2 story that they published in the back pages of Spider Island. And this is a similar thing. This is not even a fusion of 616 and 982 Peter and Mary Jane. This is a 616 Peter and Mary Jane story that has a baby in it that is Mayday and therefore it counts. But that's not something to base a a story like this on, I don't think. Agreed. And there's nothing offered by these stories to contradict what you said. This is just sort of like 616 six characters at a sliding moment plus a baby and so many of the touch points we get the Connors the the second issue is so frustrating the Rhino story and then that weird once a Valjean always a Valjean I don't know that that fourth one was but none of these stories help me to understand Peter or Mary Jane better and I know Tom DeFalco has told these stories better and this does not feel like a necessary thing for Mayday it's not hard to see why fans clamored for more Spider-Girl after the sort of weird abrupt ending and they stopped producing this pretty quickly. This isn't awful but it's a poor use of my time and their talents. Yep, I think that's totally true. Issue two we mentioned is really a low point and the thing about it is there's this whole message about like the wife of a hero or a vigilante or a law enforcement officer or whatever. We were just talking about May as this steadfast presence of love in Spider-Girl and as a member of
of the Parker family. What a good point to have done something to show a moment in May's life where she resolved that she would not flinch in the face of all this stuff that she sees and always be a presence of love. That when Peter came home from superheroing, when he came back from the fight, when he came to her, he would always know how loved he was. And I think that's something that we see pointed to a lot in Spider-Man stories. But if you are going to give us the young life of the new parents, why not show us some of the stuff that we would see as the seeds of what becomes the Peter and Mary Jane that we know now? I would much rather see them with a four-year-old May that Peter kept looking at being like, that couldn't have been powers though, right? And see Mary Jane have a similar thing because like a child not realizing they were doing something supernatural and then contexting it away as they get older is like, you know, the ultimate Peter Pan story. So I would have been fine with it if at five and six, she didn't realize she was super. And the, you know, Doc Connors issue, I think also until you had said what you said about highlighting because I I somehow didn't think of it as a metaphor for Peter I was so furious that the second issue features a district attorney or district prosecutor somebody his wife is shot on the street and Mary Jane holds their baby while Mary Jane and Peter are supposed to be out on a date so Aunt Anna is watching the baby which just makes me think Ah. what the fuck happened to Mary Jane's cousin who I never wanted whatever happened to her that was dropped I guess that was also the heart of the spider or whatever. So the dissatisfaction I felt with the piss poor execution, literally, of a woman blinded me to the actually not awful analogy that Peter does something similar to the prosecutor in a way. And that helped me to see that I think your whole point about creating safety, consistency, love, somewhere to go as a consistent element of spider storytelling is reflected in the Doc Connor story. Ultimately, Spider-Man just kind of like convinces the lizard to stop being awful to protect his family, I guess. It doesn't feel rewarding, but it's almost verbatim, the same sort of vibe as the second story, just in its own fashion. And again, I just didn't need more of this story when there was nothing else to be gained from. Yeah, I don't understand it to such a degree because why why even have Tom DeFalco write this? Why have this be an MC2 thing? if you're not going to give us real hallmarks and trappings of MC2 and if kind of anybody could have written stories about Peter and Mary Jane as young adult parents I really don't see the point the one story that gave me something approaching a point is the Rhino one and you know I actually said to you just before recording this the other day I'm actually kind of a big Rhino fan I've talked about it on the show I've actually covered a number of Rhino stories on my own on the show the infinite comics i've talked a lot about flowers for rhino in the course of the series and the definitive effect axel alonso's freedom of issue resulted in great editorship but perhaps freedom of line occasionally led to some more confusing moments but i'm a big rhino guy he won't hurt kids and for some reason that's always made me very affectionate toward him and once again all of his story is about family protecting people he loves rhino is kind of a cool guy 
and he gets a pretty good treatment in a lot of Spider-Man stories. It was really nice to see someone treat him with the sort of, I don't want to say vaunted respect I would like to see him treated with, but you know, there's a lot of spider baddies and this is one I have affection for. So I'd like to see him treated well. And I think he does get treated well. I think seeing Peter have a moment of, we're all just people. I'll see you out on the field. This was the one I'm doing a lot of the work to get there, but this was the closest to like a seed of eventually he'll be out of the costume and need to just sort of see people as they are as civilians and and meet them in the real world and let it go let go of knowing somebody is a villain of seeing them in that way of wanting to attack or stop somebody and just be a civilian and this gave us that in a particularly interesting form i thought it was sympathetic for everyone involved and i i was pleased that they didn't at any point go with like the rhino being like well now i have to i mean they he does say he's gonna have to do crime in order to help his his aunt but they kind of like talk it out in a very low-key way this one got the closest to what i think this book ought to have because the fourth one pisses me off to kind of no end (laughs) there's cases where we have been so profusely affectionate of the tommy d got ya we love a good defalco got ya we think that's great i don't enjoy a defalco got ya when i can't figure out if the characters got got or i got got i I gotta know who's getting got when they're getting got how they got got and i can only go so far until i'm given the gotten to get where i'm going and for me this story exemplified issue four where a criminal crashes through the skylight while they're in the science lab and is like oh i'm only stealing to feed my baby and then it turns out no he's stealing because he is an untrustworthy criminal which is something that spider-man books love to just make clear someone is but i i don't know because not in a shit way i think cops can kind of be bastards a lot and i'm saying it so delicately because i'm referring to marvel comics where some cops are bastards and sometimes you know cops are literally this side of aunt may style angel creatures and that's a fiction thing but so who am i supposed to trust here the cop who needs to put that criminal in jail to have a job or the criminal who said they are trying to feed their family and don't get me wrong we then see him in the jail cell and he's a no good nudnik but also couldn't we read that as a person has to fucking live hard to survive jail like i don't know there's just no value to this story that i can't just be like "Mm, you've used the opposite to prove a very similar point very recently nope get out of here yeah i mean it's completely lacking in nuance this really feels like they felt it was important to tell us the moment at which peter took his day job as a forensic scientist and that is incorrect that was not important we did not need to know that or if we did it needed to be a weightier story than this one i also think the use of detective drasco was not cute i love an easter egg and a reference but it in a bunch of stories like this that are not really being presented with any sense of intention or purpose easter eggs just feel like kind of the least of my worries while i'm digging through trying to figure out what about this was so important to 
Peter's life and change of career and everything that happened. And it really just is that the on-site forensics person calls him a nerd and he goes, yeah, I guess I am. And she goes, well, we need nerds at the police lab. If you said to me, I could have anything that bridged the gap between MC2 starting and where the Marvel Universe was, I don't think stories that focused on the kind of stories that Tom DeFalco was already telling in that time period would have been high on my list. The key thing that made MC2 unique was Mayday or American Dream or Stinger. Why didn't you show me these heroes all fighting together when they all had young kids and there's some hero watching all of the hero's kids all at once, Squirrel Girl with Danny Cage style? And why didn't you give me, um, like, and, you know, I'm not trying to tell Tom DeFalco how to write his own universe because he sustained this book for 225 issues and what did I do? You know what I mean? But I'm disappointed that this was the lack of creativity that was showcased on what could have been a crowning achievement in accessibility for this line. And it's funny that you pitch that, you know, all the kids being taken care of while the parents are out fighting because we then do get a story coming up with the Red Queen, Hope Van Dyne, really beside herself and at her end with her need for revenge for the death of her parents. Scott Lang is present along with Stinger. You know, Scott is trying to say that they died doing what they love. But you, like, as soon as you said it, it clicked in my head that that actually would have been a really good use of page space to get us to the point we get to in later stories where a bunch of the kids have grown up and are reckoning with their parents' legacies. And the parents are having to come back and say, it was actually kind of like this. So to use the page time to reflect that a little bit so that when Red Queen shows up, it doesn't just seem like she's a shrieking harpy for no reason, that actually would have been really cool. I find myself giving this collection quite legitimately a D. I reserve an A- minus for the Rhino story, and I give the rest of this collection a D. This ranks among the worst of the MC2 line because it ranks among the least of the MC2 of the MC2 line. I might be more frustrated by the Spider Island backup story for reasons we'll get to really what an opportunity to do something special and very that's that's it that's everything because the MC2 was either so run of the mill that it could have been anybody's first issue and piloted them the series anybody could pick up almost any issue of MC2 and have a pretty good idea of what you were getting into for all of the other issues and if somebody picked up that Spider Island issue I don't know why it would possess them to go read more because it's not even the best told version of that story by them with these characters it's not even the best that the best that still stands as either Seth that was phenomenal or Last Hero Standing or Last Planet Standing like those three hallmarks are, are so excellent I don't know why you would want to read the Spider Island version but if you did and you liked it you would know exactly what you were getting everywhere else yep I I think that's exactly right the only difference is one key plot point it's and it's funny because even though that plot point is said very distinctly it doesn't so affect the rest of the story that it it almost should matter that it's there but yeah this is a very generic spider girl is the pov character but starring all the real kind of fun hits of the mc2 and it's just one of their silly adventures with one of their silly villains 
And that's fine. All these years later to do a story like that, you could convince me that's cool. That it is in a book that is part of a crossover that is so distinct and that so many writers at this exact same time, some of whom are nowhere near as accomplished or, you know, frankly, talented as Tom DeFalco. As talented as Tom DeFalco, who, yes, definitely worth saying. Excellent. That they are writing, they're figuring out how to write. Again, not even a reference to who the Baron of MC2 island we don't even know what it is that there couldn't even be a little flavor of this insane crossover in which there is an entire world dedicated to inferno there's an entire fucking world developed to ease for extinction there's 2099 there's so many things that you would think well you can't base an entire like mini universe on that stupid thing and yet people figured out how to do it in a way that was really true to whatever the story is that they were referencing and in ways that were fun and contributed to the event and that this story is said to be doing the same thing and yet contains none of those elements and is a middling story for the universe that it comes from in the first place it just there's too much of this kind of critique at the end here that they're just given the opportunity all they did was just put out the path of least resistance it's so funny to hear you say all the things you said because I think that's exactly the same problem with this, but in a way that we haven't said explicitly yet. You said that the one of the problems with the Spider Island story is that it's Spider Girl, but it's like all the cool moments from the MC2 universe, but it never really once addresses Battle World. This is a bunch of things from Spider Girl. It's not even the cool stuff, but it never once addresses how this leads to Spider Girl. It never once comes close to what it has to do with the start of Spider Girl. It's just placeholder Peter Parker stories. Yeah, and actually, that's one of the bigger critiques that I can't believe I didn't get to yet. There's no mention of the leg. Yeah, the leg hasn't happened yet. I probably would have told four or five issues of just that story. I just would have gotten that story out. And, you know, you don't have to do the battle or anything, but it could have been, like, first issue is he realizes he's going into this final battle. The next issue is just highlights from the battle. Then it's him in the hospital. Then it's him recovering. Then it's him realizing that he will never be Spider-Man again. He's going to that job as a forensic scientist because, again, you don't need a whole issue for him to realize that he can do that. And he says, you know, maybe one day the next generation, somebody like my daughter will pick it up or something like that. But that would have just that one story, just the story of him, his leg getting destroyed and and how he deals with that would have been enough to give us a solid bridge between the Spider-Man from the 616 that is the past for these people and where we are in MC2. And instead, it, we just get flashback to date night. I don't know, just doesn't seem befitting of the talent of these creators. So I feel like in that last segment, we were really critical about a lot of what we're going to discuss today. And I don't regret any of my criticisms per se. I feel as though this really does represent the lowest point in the series. There still are some really interesting things to be taken here, but this initial run of Spectacular Spider-Girl 1 through 8, originally published in Marvel Digital format, is a lot to swallow at times. Yeah, and repeatedly I have said 
said, this is just one ongoing plot that starts at issue 25 and is wrapped up in the end. And there is really no planning for how this plot will get broken up. There was no anticipation of the ways that this book would be published. It just apparently is the idea that Tom DeFalco had for this. I mean, I was going to say for the end of May's story, but it's really not even that. It's just an idea that he had for a story with May in it. It's really his idea for her clone saga. And then at a certain point, it is determined that this really will be the end. There's not going to be another Spider-Girl title published such that you can start a new story or anything. So it's just really wrapping up May's Clone War saga in a way that then just adds more elements into the mix that don't make anything better. Eventually, it's just a really hard, sharp end because that is literally all we can do. We have to finally say May is not getting another book anytime soon and publish something that can say the end and we walk away from it. And I think part of what gets me down so much about it is we've talked at length in the last two segments about the potentiality of April as a character and what she could have provided. You know, with the era we live in now, Venom is just permanently a hero. I don't see a path back to villainy for Eddie Brock, perhaps the symbiote, perhaps in a down the line, fucked up, lost his mind, Johnny Blaze, Ben Percy comes in, it gets real vertigo. But I don't really see there's a way for Eddie Brock, star of two films, who cameoed in an MC2, in an MCU. Uh, that's the first. So everybody needs to know that I have spent the last, I don't know how many fucking hours of my life editing out the number of times the two of us have said MCU <laughs> when we meant MC2. Yep. And I, for the first time ever, just did the opposite. Jeez. So, you know, Venom has appeared in too much now to ever become evil again. And if this came out now, Mayhem would just, she'd have her own fucking title. I think it would be called Spider-Girl Blue and Spider-Girl Red. And it would focus on different characters each month, but it would always be Spider-Girl Blue slash Red. And they would just kind of dress it up attractively and they would try and make a gimmick out of it. Yeah, I love Mayhem. I mean, I had a weird moment earlier this year where I started getting a little bit into symbiote stuff due to coverage that we were doing that wasn't really even related to symbiote stuff, but it all just kind of came together. And Alyssa Wong had been talking about how writing one of the symbiotes was one of the characters that she really liked. I finally started to refine my view of symbiote stuff. And Spider-Girl has not really interacted with symbiote stuff in ways that super excite me for the most part. We got there a little bit with Normie and what Nico referred to regularly as Dusk, though the book never did, but I love that name and it is kind of put in there just like at an odd angle that I never recognized and you did, but then I fell in love with it as a name for the character. Normie as Dusk was a really interesting moment and that's about all. This is really the first time that we've gotten something that says to me, MC2 symbiote stuff could have been cool and the idea is really awesome. And then from there, it just sputters out of control and turns into a house fire. I'm really glad the book ended before Mayhem could die and her symbiote could be repurposed for Raptor in a way that compels Normie to love her more and less. 
I can't even begin to tell you that I forgot about Dusk because this book has gotten so far from yeah. Normie having ever had, you know, it's weird because the book goes for a couple of Hail Marys here. And I don't know if they were Hail Marys because, oh, nope, now it's online. And so it's already in a different form. But this opens with, you know, the kind of invention of Spider-Girl Blue and Spider-Girl Red, which some of the attack on that, I think, is a reference to when Superman was temporarily Superman Blue and Superman Red after the reign of the Superman after the death of Superman, which, you know, that's its own separate podcast I'm never going to do. So I'm unsure of why you would give us something so cool, something so genuinely titillating, exciting to think about this two, like how powerful can two spider girls be? What could they do if it really is a spider girl world? What happens when you have two of this amazing woman fighting to make the world better and instead you just took it? (laughs) And what happens when you flip the script on a story that Marvel has told a thousand times where there's a person and a clone and whoops, we switcherooed them and now we don't know who's who and one person is definitely sure they're the real one and one person isn't sure of who they really are. And I mean, I say this about a character that identify with too much, Cable and Strife, who have gone back and forth on who's the clone and who's not. And honestly, it's one of their least interesting story aspects. This is an idea that we have explored plenty in Marvel Comics. The idea that we haven't explored is we got this information, we came together, and we realized it doesn't fucking matter. We both exist. We are both people. We both want love and affection and family. And one of us is a clone, one of us isn't. We don't know who it is, so we're sisters now. And we're now we're doing sister shit. And Spider-Man never managed to pull that off with Ben Riley. We're like now in this era kind of getting closer to it. But even still, it's this weird thing where like he, uh, Peter Parker and Ben like can't be friends or like acknowledge each other regularly. They just have to like respectfully from a distance, both spider on their own time and like, you know, root for each other, but they can't sit down and have a fucking beer. And that just seems so silly to me. And it seems so played out. This idea that you have to know who the clone is so you can know who the fake is and make sure that they don't get the same respect for identity as the real one gets. And this was a point to do things differently. And especially because the storylines are getting so convoluted and out of control. Why it, Spectacular Spider-Girl number one, why not reset? We've got these two girls and let's do 11 issues of just like fun with Spider-Girl Red and Spider-Girl Blue and not keep digging into this plot that isn't, isn't doing anybody any favors. There are so many attempts to try and do exactly what you're saying, go somewhere new. But I think sometimes about how hard it can be to convince people that they've been thinking about something wrong, right? When you say to somebody, you know, tell me, what's the cool version you can do of this thing? And they go, oh, wow. Okay, so you're showing me this sculpture. I I could do that sculpture in blue. And you're like, okay, well, it's a red sculpture, but you're, you're saying you'll do the exact same sculpture in blue. How else could you represent in your own art this sculpture's feeling and they say i could do it a little bigger in blue and then like do another uh, little smaller one maybe in green and you're like okay you're continuing to reskin the look of the idea but just go a step further why does it need to still be a statue why does it still need to be bound by a single idea of color you get so close to seeing tom defalco and co see comics change in front of them this is a fucking digital book but every time they get a chance to step forward we're automatically back in high school Courtney's back with Moose Jean is with Simone and it's still 
playing at weird children's games of burgeoning sexuality and identity that all kind of plays together like the Kardashians on TMZ. And it's not what I want. And then a clone shows up and she looks different than you thought she was going to look because she can morph. And none of that is remarked upon in a way that says we introduced this insane science fiction element to this high school drama and shouldn't that shake things up? Because of course it doesn't do that because it hasn't been doing that for 150 issues. And we commented a bit on that April is kind of strange looking, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. You know, once again, we're really not thinking about what kids at this point, because I'm assuming this is aimed at young women. I don't think you aim a book about a young woman at the older white comic male readers who are famous for not supporting books about young women. So I have to assume this was still an attempt to target a book toward a younger demographic. You can definitely see where this was originally going to be a shorter story. All of the others are 17 pages. This one is inexplicably like 23 or 24. And the page 17 reveal definitely uh, should be a moment. Fuck. I'm so mad because I kept being like, oh, this book is called Who is Gwen Riley? So I just kept thinking that was going to be the name April was going to take. And then, no, there's a separate Gwen Riley who's also playing at Weird Identity Politics. I just don't understand how quickly this moves in a direction that I find hard to follow. They kill Gwen Riley right away and it's April killed her, but she didn't, but she might have. I don't know. I mean, you are describing it actually as it happens in the plot. Like she shows up on page 17 and it's 24 pages. She's dead seven pages later. This big splash page reveal of of a Gwen Stacy clone, basically, immediately dead. And then we're just supposed to be like, I don't care about the clone and what that, what the implications of that are. Now I have to care about, did April murder her? And what the machinations behind the clone showing up in the first place are, but not who that person was or anything. That's just now a dead body. And this is where April's faith-esque journey, where now she has, quote, murdered somebody, starts Starts to set her off and you're supposed to think like, oh, this is this girl's questionable. But also, like, there's no evidence that she murdered this person. So it's like we're we're treating her as guilty for something that she has not been proven to have done. And then she's behaving as though she is a killer while denying that she killed this person. And these elements together, you could believe that a writer might be using them to show somebody that is not well, that needs mental health support. But that's not what this is. It's just ramping up, I don't even want to say the tension, the, the chaos and the the potential for plot points but not organized ones, just ones that we're pulling out of a bag. Perhaps a bowling bag because <laughs> you know, I'm even okay, actually I don't love that the covers are just often the first page repurposed at a higher size. Yeah. It feels very cheap and I understand that we actually don't always get a whole lot better by today's Marvel Unlimited uh, infinite style scrolling which I really like the format on I actually think this book in that style designed for that style not repurposed for it could have been really cool exactly but instead you know it feels like it's just made really cheaply and Don Silvio bowling a guy to death 
feels really silly. Phil and uh, Phil looking <laughs> like Chris <laughs> Joker. <laughs> yes. This, Phil, this person type that Ron friends can't help but male or female draw like a quarter of the characters in this book as. Oh, and earlier Moose looked like like an albino grimace. <laughs> and I had no idea what to do with that. But and uh, they're also dressing April like something between John Romita Jr.'s Electra and perhaps Fran Drescher. That's exactly it, that is exactly it. But it's too. 2009. <laughs> Who is this? I mean, me. Literally me. <laughs> Who else could this possibly be for? Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. He never would, but, like, I'm just trying to think of, like, if Olivier Coipel drew this and drew this style, you would be like, oh, he was doing something really weird. And, like, there's something to this. Like, this is, like, supposed to be foreshadowing or a red flag. Like, this is proof that she's insane. <laughs> With Ron Friends, it just feels like, I don't know, that's hip, right? That's, like, alternative to May. Yeah, it definitely feels like we're still operating under a form of society that sort of, I guess, doesn't get enough analyzation for how it got there. People really started to fit into that, are you a nerd? Are you a jock? What kind of dude are you? Ha ha, I'm a football guy. Kind of, oh, I'm going to push my, my, my glasses up. I'm a nerd. Kind of mentality because we started to see caricatures presented in media, both between television and movies, and there was a design behind it. This way, they were character types you could identify with or identify identify against. And I think in the 1980s, it was hitting a weird place where they were like, we're still going to do that character type, but we're also going to add in the fact that, you know, Masters of the Universe and Transformers are popular and we're going to have everybody reveal themselves in some other way. Uh, what says sexy fun time girl that's covering up insecurity? Big hair, short skirt and a long jacket. <laughs> if we had gotten the long jacket, it would have been fine. But instead, we get some sort of, you can only imagine the pennies in flushing that this jacket is hanging on the back rack by the dressing room, by the register no one uses. It's just out of nowhere in a way that is not pleasantly surprising. It is just bewildering. I also found myself very frustrated by how little I understood the Aranya Black Tarantula stuff at first. Straight up, I love that book with Chesbro as like Chesbro was always going to have a special spot in his heart for May but I could really see him also having a great friendship with Aranya and I think Aranya could help turn this criminal empire into perhaps a lawless force for good but I spent like every page of spectacular spider girl digital version which I'm convinced that the follow up was also designed for digital yeah. and they just smushed it all together and that's why nothing makes any pacing sense and why halfway through issues they're like to be continued on the next yeah. page yep i kept being afraid that they were going to reveal that aranya was secretly just about to betray the black tarantula and that this was all just like a get inside and destroy him from the inside and that's what the heart of the spider actually was she was going to crush his heart by betraying him and you know i really am so glad that's not where they went because knowing how it ends sometimes makes a really tough show that gets better easier to watch knowing that there's stuff that i like about the the way this ends makes 
feeling frustrated by a lot of the May stuff a little easier. Yeah, I agree with that. At this point, I'm just looking for elements that I can pick up and put in my bag and carry with me into the future and hope that they appear one day in other stories. And it was important to me to save Black Tarantula and Chesbro. I don't so much care about Aranya, but that she is here and playing a positive role in Black Tarantula's life and taking him out of the equation of worrying about him in May. You know, at this point, I, I now don't want that story because it, there's just too much happening and I don't want to cut in with trying to figure out Black Tarantula in May. So, you know, the three of them, Chesbro, Black Tarantula, and Aranya doing their thing, that's fine. I fail to see broadly why the team felt that it was necessary to include them so much in this book. The cutaways to them for a page or two at this point in the story aren't really doing much for us. And this book has shown us that it's not afraid to just do a deus ex machina moment and they really could have just swooped in anytime they were needed and we could have used that page time for something else or not just cut the book shorter I don't know but they just where they are here it doesn't feel like it's uh, adding anything particular to the story I'm really just trying to get to the resolution of this clone stuff as quickly as possible because it is so tense but not for the right reason and I think some of the reasons that I find myself filled mired with tension have to do with the way that the book has misled me before once tombstone shows up i just want to fucking sweep everything off the table this title as like a spider girl line is famous for introduce bad guy introduce second bad guy second bad guy replaces first bad guy second bad guy gets new other bad guy other bad guy replaces first bad guy so i'm expecting you know don silvio to be the replacement for probably hobgoblin and now i'm expecting tombstone to eventually replace him and then you know I become concerned that I'm going to be stuck with a character that I don't like and I'm already putting up with that for characters like Simone who I'm sorry I really find the whole pantsing teenage girls thing disturbing genuinely like actually disturbed yeah we we spoke about this as we were preparing for the coverage The, the idea of pantsing two girls even if it's a girl doing it is a big swing in the first place and it is a swing that I would advise 99% of writers not to take. If you are a certain writer of female experience that is writing about something that maybe happened to you or that you understand or you're trying to reflect a personal experience, you might be able to find a way to put this on the page in a way that honors whatever story you are trying to tell. Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends writing this teenage clone hybrid alien symbiote girl with a claw finger jutting it out into the air as though she's going to claw finger fuck these girls and then suddenly their pants come down I just for the life of me I cannot imagine why somebody did not stop this and I say that about big plot elements where you know Nico very astutely responds that like there were bigger forces at work here and there was more to be done with the story than worrying about like trying to completely reset this whole ship at this point but panel to panel horrible things like this I feel like an editor should have just said I cannot print that because there's things that are not great that aren't horrible I really don't love a lot of the interplay of April and Wes there's an element of we don't need teenage girls playing pseudo-sexual psycho mind games with young men who turn out are really nice guys so like I love that Wes never says he's a nice guy Wes is almost like I'm not good either but I'm better than that and like that 
that's almost not nice guy syndrome. So I'll try it. It's the best we're going to get. We're just, we're taking it at this point. We don't want to add somebody else to the mix and risk it going horribly awry. Speaking of adding somebody else to the mix, there is this one uh, bearishly cute. Trust me, I, I woof bears that look like this guy on Scruff all the time. I live right near Staten Island. So it's not hard to find like gay Italian guys with gold chains all the time. And this one assistant of Don Silvio's, you can find him uh, probably best on issue three, page 11. I want to know what comic book editor like insulted Tom DeFalco to his <laughs> face that he was like, draw this guy. This is the lackey. <laughs> yeah, that is exactly the look that this guy is giving. And I can imagine some names, but I think you are exactly right. Then there's all this stuff with Ruiz and Parker that like that we Peter Parker that we think might go somewhere, but doesn't. And it's because there's not enough time and they kind of pretend it goes somewhere, but it doesn't. The thing I am living for is every time mayhem transforms into to Mayhem from Spider-Girl. That red and blue look, the colored... Uh, I'm going to say, you know, we've been really not always warm about the look of the art as Ron Friends and Sabu Shema have gotten further into the run. Because again, if she's still 16 and it says right on the front page, right on page one of issue four, where she is... April is swinging through the sky. It literally says that she's 16 years old. Why do we have her ass so perfectly in the center of the page. If she's 16, where we're saying she's 16, why is there any sexualization of her form in this way? Yeah, they make the mistake enough that we comment on it when it happens, but we go long stretches without having to deal with stuff like this from this book. Like they they know how to depict Spider-Girl not being sexual, not being in weird poses, and the book survives fine. Yeah, you know, there's more weird stuff between April and Wes that just feels like it should have been in last issue that I guess because she's emboldened by having played hero April is at a different place than she was last issue but for me the really tough thing is what feels like resized art I mean really really resized art mm-hmm. digital page 7 of issue 4 there is some I mean we're, we're definitely in the age of flats and shading because you can see the shading on Kane as he's breaking through the glass. That panel's not so distracting. It's the three panels below it where, you know, as a guy who has professional flatting experience, like, these just weren't flatted right. Like, this was not filled in properly. And I know I just praised how great the colors were. This does not make me think this was colored or drawn poorly. I really just want to stress that this feels like a resize or a a reworking of existing panels that never should have been reused used in this way. You also see some really unclean, unproperly colored, unproperly inked work on the top panel. And, you know, when we're saying that this book has a hard enough uphill struggle, production not offering more does nothing to make it better. Yep, you see similar problems on page eight. It just all, it's it's messy and it's obvious that it has something to do with the fact that this is a digital book. It's not anything that can't be forgiven this is a bad time to have these mistakes because this book doesn't have a lot going for it. So they become infinitely more noticeable. And also some of them just feel like 
like there has to have been some alternative because whatever the panel is that got put here is not doing so much legwork that you couldn't you know just maybe remove it entirely a lot of the ones that really look the worst are not very functional in the first place so i don't really understand what happened and the problem becomes there's some really great art in this issue as well i think a lot of the pages in the tombstone fight look like old scans yeah there's a loss of line quality you know there's a couple of panels where there's a couple of pages that look terrific but the difference in the color and line texture quality of page 12 to page 13 mm-hmm. is unbelievable the highlight details of the wrists and legs of tombstone on page 14 are terrific but the because they're meant to be kind of sketch but the panels of him running and trapped don't have that same polish the panels of his death have that polish which the fact that we didn't see May, we didn't see mayday die but he says she did and then april kills him should have been everything we needed to see the way this had to end yeah uh, i think the way tombstone dies is actually kind of tremendous like i'm not like yeah murder him but the method of execution is cleverly done where you know like the venom clearly like goes through his face and so he's symbioted to death it's the creep factor of may being of may do you see what just happened Mm -hmm. it's the creep factor of april being like i may now which goes nowhere as though they were told you do not have the the breadth to run that story which is a (laughs) bummer because if that had been like i don't want evil april but if you were gonna do evil april i would have preferred evil april to this pine baron story Uh. oh my god that's not the jersey devil that's (laughs) man bat you stop it yeah thank you okay i was wondering about that and i forgot to ask you about that that's just man bat i mean jersey devil can have wings and can fly but one of the things is he is known as the jersey devil not the jersey flying whirling dervish so i don't know i also hate more than life more than i can say page three she is ass up tied in chains yeah that is wholly unacceptable it reads like an issue of 100 bullets at times which i love 100 bullets it's one of my favorite dc vertigo works from the you know initial offering of high quality creator owned titles but this issue is really one of the moments that i was like i wish we'd stopped at 100 yeah because on top of moments like that that are ugly and sexualizing a child it is a treading water moment when we would all just rather be out of the water entirely (laughs) so i needed to do a little research because i was like there has to be a character that can explain to me why this guy's name is father santini well the best i've got is that batwing is named jimmy santini and worked with his father and this is man bat i don't know but random nice guy priest is one of the weirder things this issue i have no idea how this fury fighting april thing is supposed to have gone on in the background of two pages (laughs) that is the worst fury has ever looked on that last page and then it's repurposed as the next cover but slightly bigger and we immediately get may coming home and they're like wait but i thought you were dead no i'm not dead oh then april must be up to no good oh no april oh wait but what about gwen but what about tombs like oh my god why are we not just committing to a beat i do want to give fury alon some credit for terrorizing manhattan while riding around on a giant penis 
It is a beautiful way to say that this woman has been forced to ride the dicks of every character to get here. They go so far out of their way to humiliate Fury before they get rid of her. I mean, really, she loses her mind because she finds out that it's not going to be Normie that gets to be Norman. But then you never loved Normie. You wanted to be with Norman. What did you think was going to happen? Like, and then she puts, I mean, I'm kind of amused that she puts April back in a tank. I know you yeah. shouldn't be. Yeah. But <laughs> no, like, it's funny. It's really good. It's like, yeah, it's kind of like, oh, she really had this plan. And yeah, they confirm that Fury killed the Goblin Queen. I'm sorry, Fury the Goblin Queen. I cannot believe that she calls herself Fury the Goblin Queen. God damn it. Fury the Goblin Queen killed Gwen Riley, who really was Connie Fredrickson, the child of this doctor that had an affair with Norman Osborn. And she underwent plastic surgery, learned all about these people just so she could die, I guess. I'm just so flustered by how little some of this seems to have been thought out before this issue. Yeah, it is as though they said, this is going to print in eight hours, write and draw the entire thing in eight hours. I even tried to do a little bit of work to see if Tom DeFalco had some other high profile assignments at the time. Maybe he was doing some uncredited work, but it does start to read as though we are getting to a point where Tom DeFalco is saying to himself, look, let's just do the thing. Let's whatever, whatever thing we said might happen. Let's just do it. Simone is actually fucking connected to the goblins. So, and this is the other part of Fury going insane is there's like a civilian arm of the goblin cult that has different ideas about what's supposed to happen. And the internal strife between them causes her enormous distress. Her chief rival, we ultimately discover, is Simone's father, who I guess the idea is that he kind of wanted to emulate more Norman Osborn and do like Oscorp shenanigans type things rather than goblin stuff where Fury wants everybody to be goblin-y and I can't even confirm that that's exactly what the what the problem is but ultimately yes Simone is connected to goblin stuff but is entire like we were saying it would be really cool if she was like a mini Elan like she was going to be a teen goblin of some kind um she's not she's just a bitch who is at the end of the day kind of innocent like she does shitty high school things but she's not actually like an evil goblin high schooler. An evil goblin high schooler was the only way to give her something. It doesn't make her redeemable, but it gives her something that makes her a standout character. Now she is just powerless before the goblin forces, but a really nasty high schooler who does gross sex stuff to out-sex her rival. Who she spends an awful lot of time thinking about. Like, are you just gay for May? Is that what's happening, Simone? Simone, are you gay for May? Because it's what it's seeming like. You're trying to get in every private corner of her life, control the outcome of it. Are you going to propose next? Because this is some black tarantula shit, is really what it is. And I also just want to comment on how during all of this, which has been one nonstop story since issue one, more or less, Wes almost gets Gwen Stacy <laughs> and they're starting to overuse the value of the Gwen Stacying 
<laughs> now I'm just you're never going to Gwen Stacy anybody, and if you do, it's going to be disappointing. Yeah, I mean we've had two in I, I can't even count now because the the issues page counts it all it's all bleeding together. Mary Jane who got saved by Baby Benji. Now we've got Wes. We also had a Gwen Stacy. It's as though they really want you to be thinking Spider-Man classic moments, but just that phrase, no like organization to any of it. Just think Spider-Man classic moments. And we get a little bit more of Spider-Girl classic moments, at least. Happy for that. We have Kane. We have Dark Devil. You know, Agent Whedon, I guess. Uh. You know, we get a lot of what I would want to see as the book continues. But I don't know. It really is like Tom DeFalco wakes up Monday and says, this is it. This is the last week I get to write Spider-Girl. All right. Okay. And then on Tuesday, he goes to a whole nother state of grief and is like, no, I'm going to write this forever. New plots. (laughs) Because you get Kane outing the secret group to Ruiz and what seems to be a like a new story, like them working with the police. That doesn't seem like this is going to bring two stories to an end. It feels like the next part of two stories. And then they just randomly blow up Black Tarantula's lair. And in the meantime, you have like a bunch of Spider-Girl and Dark Devil stuff that feels correct at least. I mean, like it feels like more where I want the book to be. And if we're coming to a close, which again, it does feel like there are moments where parts of this are written where the author feels like, okay, this book is going to end soon. And then the next page somehow in between, it was a day later and he realized it's not going to end. There's going to be more. So it's that level of frenetic and and changing in a way that is words are disconnected from each other page to page. And I think that even winds up being a huge, for lack of a better term, threat of the plot as the spider girl fury fight rages, the dark devil mayhem fight continues to go on. Simone is screaming. And, you know, at this point, we have come to find that April has agreed to work with the fury to defeat spider girl. And then there's this moment where dark devil has Mary Jane's powers for a second and is like, no, 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 she actually cares about you. And I actually feel as though the only reason that April decides to help May is because she figures out how to get the collar off. I think she would have just been fine giving over to the dark side if she hadn't gotten the collar off as per the writing of this arc. Yeah, I don't think there's any reason to think otherwise. I would like to think that she cares about May, but I just don't feel like she does. And it bums me out because like we've said, this was a lot of potential and the ultimate defeat of the Fury, because this is the Fury's defeat, doesn't really do much for me. I don't feel like Dark Devil being here served any purpose. Like if maybe someone had said, hey, do you remember when we flirted for a minute? No, me neither. Like if we had come close to something, I just feel like there is no longer the need to prove that the book needs to stay published. Like that's something that they lost. The fire that said, we need to fight to keep bringing this back tomorrow. I'm not saying they're not doing the best they can do where they don't take it seriously, but it definitely doesn't read with the fighter's spirit of like issues 30 to 40 of the original series. Yeah, this is just like, I'll have it on your desk by Friday. You can publish. You know, Aranya and Chesbro and Black Tarantula survive. And I do love know, that nothing... one panel though. Oh, with him carrying them to safety? Yeah, yeah a little Chesbro. 
it is so great to see that Black Tarantula loves his family mm-hmm. because he's not just like nutty. He he's focused. He cares. There's so much that frustrates me about the fact that it can't slow down. And the teenage scenes almost all seem to be stuck on the same evening in Cafe Indigo, <laughs> literally through yeah. the end of the MC2. Yeah, I'm disappointed because it does feel like as we added adjectives, the adjectives became less true. Amazing it was not. And spectacular this is not. And there's 11 of them, but like you can tell that there was meant to be 12. And, you know, like we said, the miniseries that follows this is clearly eight parts, not four. So that's 20. Then Spider-Girl, the end feels kind of like a handful of stories. Like you can see how this was 24 issues at some point that this was two years of storytelling somewhere. But I actually don't think this is particularly worse than Mr. and Mrs. Spider-Man. Probably better than Mr. and Mrs. Spider-Man. Um, and maybe just how much mayhem we get brings this a little bit up from amazing for me. The end of it, at least. But this is just it's a mess. It is, unfortunately, a total mess. Spider-Girl, the end, doesn't redeem any of these elements. There's no way to salvage any of the wreckage that is happening currently in the last major story that will be told for Spider-Girl. So you're just kind of looking at the trash fire burning. Now, there's still a couple of surprises that I'm going to enjoy as they occur. There's things here and there, but we are literally not dealing with any of the villains of the final five issues. We are not actually facing the final battle of this arc yet. You know, Silverback is doing nothing here. We are not actually facing, because I mean, if you've seen the covers of Spider-Girl Volume 2, Spectacular Spider-Girl Volume 2, there is a major player reintroduced that we're going to get to next episode, and it is so unsatisfying that that character comes out of nowhere. Truly. And there are villains to return yet, but the villains that are going to come back I would have rather never seen again. Yeah, I completely agree. When I try and think about who I would have liked to have seen, I really can't think of anybody either which really speaks to the idea that this book ought to have ended a long time ago. If maybe Lady Ock came back because she had like Waldo arm chemical poisoning and she, from her notes, found that Peter Parker could synthesize a cure from his science days. He has the knowledge and like she had him locked up and Spider-Girl had to save her dad. I'd read that, but you know, there's yet more goblin instead. And no. All of this is happening while like the high school stuff, which you don't like anyway, gets like a page or a panel here or there, but we've now stopped any and all references to like what's going on in those people's lives. May shows up just to be marked present, but then leaves for April stuff or Spider Girl stuff. And it just feels like because they insisted on keeping this high school stuff for so long despite it having no purpose when we finally get to a point at which you really ought to leave it by the wayside because there's way too much to do way too much going on and none of the high school plots are relevant to it they have to now insert it otherwise we have no idea what may is about or who she is you know i feel like we gave the final volume of amazing like a c minus and said we wanted better and then we gave mr and mrs spider-man like a 
D. I'm going to give this a C, and I'm going to give this a C with no qualifications. I'm going to give this, there were things I liked, there were things I really didn't like. A lot of this book lasts on the strength of the goodwill the characters engender for me. I'm excited that this is the only place I get this black tarantula. I like that Mayhem is cool looking. Other than that, I mean, like, I guess in some ways I'm saying these get, this gets a C the same way light up sneakers get a C. Oh, they're sneakers. Oh, and they light up. That's, that's a novelty. I'm ready to say goodbye now. Been ready to say goodbye. This feels like, you know, I can even as we are talking about it and covering it, I am like reworking these eight issues in my mind to end the book. I feel like it really was possible and ought to have happened because we're now going to go do a whole other thing. I don't know how, how you justify it. I'm honestly surprised that the creative team wanted to do it in the first place. Again, I guess, you know, paycheck's a paycheck. If they're asking you to write the book, you write the book. But it really does, because this is their hard-won creation, that these are the types of stories that she's getting. And I do believe that a lot of it could have to do with the random nature of Spider-Girl getting renewed for another opportunity and never really knowing when it's just, it's going to stop for good. But at a certain point, somebody has to be the one to say, we've hit a good stopping point. And unfortunately, nobody does that for poor Mayday. At least not until the end. We have three digital issues left to go for repurposed for print issues. After that, it's going to roughly run about 11 of these digital issues. So we just did eight digital issues, maybe nine technically, because that first one was double-sized. We have about 11 to go. And then we have the vaguely larger than average-sized Spider-Girl, the end. I also want to point out, we're going to get a reprint of the annual backup story, the game in there. Yeah. (laughs) Why? Yeah. It's not even the best short-form backup story they could have reprinted. Nope. There's much better. So that was surprising. Then we're going to kind of hightail our asses out of the MC2 for a hot minute. And we're going to take a look at the legacy of the MC2. Is it related to the Marvel Universe? We're going to take a look at Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends and Sal Buscema's fucking Thunderstrike, I guess. This one, of course, being 616 Thunderstrike, seemingly inspired in every way by 982 Thunderstrike, but totally different. Then we're going to take a look at Captain America Corps 1 through 5, a book that so completely misses the point of itself (laughs) that I'm really just so happy that it wasn't written by Tom DeFalco. Yep. Truly relieved as hell because when you look at the cycle, it's clearly slotted into the Tom DeFalco gets a book here slot. It like almost picks up immediately following Thunderstrike's publication, which picks up almost immediately following the Spider-Girl publication. It really feels like this was going to be a Tom DeFalco book, but somebody said otherwise. And Roger Stern, another comics legend, does not hit this one out of the park, but it's nice to see American Dream for the three pages she's allowed to have a personality. Now, we're going to come back to Spider-Girl. Now, you've actually done something I haven't done yet, and I'm excited to do it, but I have now read the Spider Island MC2 story, which reads very much like one of the one-off burners in the 40s and 50s that we always said took down those high points of the series for no reason. Uh, We get one of those, but between those things, we get Spider-Verse, and evidently that is not so good for May. I'm excited to talk about it because... It is bad for May, but it is a thing that we so rarely get for her, which is big change. And it stuns because it's so novel for this character. Unfortunately, it just is not how I would have done big change for May. But we will discuss. Well, until we return for the end 
of Spider Girl and the beginnings of Spider Woman. TK, where can everybody find you online? You can find me talking on this podcast all the time about all different kinds of books from X-Men to Avengers to Eternals to all of the above in Judgment Day. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. You guys can find me as always all over this show alongside this guy as well as over on the partner shows for this, The Billy Club and HTML, both available over on YouTube at youtube.com slash hubs plus network where my husband and I, Kevo, also all over the network, run all sorts of videos all the time. You guys can also find my original work in the Young Men in Love anthology alongside Marvel greats like Cena Grace, Anthony Oliveira, and Terry Bloss. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N and this show at xsforpodcast.com. And until next time, I guess uh, stay the fuck away from mayhem. Socket MC to me. Oh God, I hate that we only came to that like anti-penultimate. Mm.